Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the God's Own Scale podcast, where the smaller it is, the bigger the reward. My name's Sean Clark. Today I am speaking to military historian and author Nigel Atta, who kindly gave up uh, an hour or so of his time to talk to me about his two books on the First World War, uh, one of which I've just read called In the Shadow of Wah Hugo, uh, about the Lincoln uh, Regiment at the Battle of Luz. It's a fascinating read, it really is. Um, this episode is probably one of the more self-indulgent ones because this is an area of interest specifically uh, for me. Um, I do hope, though, that some of you listeners out there get something out of this just as much as I do. Not a lot of hobby news at the moment. Uh, as I record this, it's the 18th of May, so yesterday saw the first major step towards the unlocking of lockdown, uh, where some social restrictions were lifted, uh, and we are now just over a month away from the complete lifting of all social distancing laws, regulations, advice, etc. And hopefully that will go ahead. Obviously, it's pending what happens over the next four weeks or so. Um, but let's keep our fingers crossed that we are returning to some kind of normality. I feel like I've been talking about the pandemic in the intro to every episode uh, since I've started producing uh, this podcast, but hopefully, hopefully not too many more. I recently put out a poll, Twitter and on the Patreon, uh, just to canvas opinions on whether or not some more varied content, as in more uh, discussion around other scales, uh, would be acceptable to the listenership. Um, really, I, I may not have made myself very clear on this, but it would be the very occasional wander off into uh, another scale. Absolutely not suggesting that this podcast becomes a more general wargaming podcast. That isn't the case. It will continue to have a strong emphasis on 6mm gaming uh, with some historical content, as is this episode. But uh, the odd episode where I might talk to other people within the industry, other manufacturers, other producers of content, uh, it, it was really the purpose of that. And I think in the main, so long as we, I do keep towards a 6mm centric podcast, I think most people were fairly happy with that. So um, there's nothing planned as yet. Uh, there's lots of more content lined up. Um, I've got people really lined up through to uh, middle, late summer uh, for episodes. So there's certainly not going to be any shortage of 6mm related and historical content I do have one person ready to talk to me uh, for my first episode of non-historical content, so science fiction and fantasy, but more on that at a later date once um, I've managed to sort the schedule out and uh, pulled one or two strings to make sure that happens. One little bit of podcast news is that the podcast has a sponsor now. It's got a sponsorship deal. Uh, and it, it'll be a name that's very familiar to you if you listened to the Meeples and Miniatures podcast, which I'm fairly confident the vast majority of people who listen to this will have heard at least half a dozen episodes from Meeples and Miniatures. But um, the company is Coat Arms, a well-known manufacturer of paint and brushes for the war games market. Meeples were sponsored by Coat Arms back in the day, and I am incredibly excited that Coat Arms have agreed 
to sponsor the God's Own Scale podcast. So there'll be links up in the show notes. You might see the odd logo of Coat Arms, and I will be talking about Coat Arms in each episode just to ensure that the message gets across that Coat Arms are a great uh, paint manufacturer for the war game with a huge range of paints in military colours and fantasy colours, horse colours. Uh, some lovely brushes as well. I've used coat arms for many, many years and plan to do so in the future, regardless of the sponsorship. But uh, that will be coming, so uh, more on that probably in the next episode, I would expect. Um, but other than that, not a lot uh, to talk about in the new section. Uh, anyway, that's enough of this pre-ramble, me waffling on and uh, talking about nonsense. It is time that we moved over to the studio to talk to Nigel. Let's talk about six. Okay, welcome to episode 32 of the God's Own Scale podcast. And I am in the presence of a historian and published author uh, today who's also a wargamer. And we'll get onto the warming, wargaming aspect uh, a bit later on. But I've got Mr. Nigel Atta with me tonight. Hi, Nigel. How are you? Hi, Sean. I'm very well, thank you. And um, I must say thank you very much indeed for inviting me onto your uh, podcast. Not at all. Well, I, I became aware of you um I, I was already aware of you uh, through researching books into the First World War, but we encountered each other on uh, Alex's Paint and Chat, I think. We did. That was the first time I think we came across each other. And uh, I, I really like uh, Alex's work. You know, the Storm of Steel war gaming is fantastic. And all of his, you know, sort of podcasts and, uh, you know, videos on, on YouTube uh, have really helped my, my war gaming come along. Yeah, he's certainly, he's he's kicked it up a gear, I think, in the in the last 12 to 18 months, hasn't he? Um, and he's a, he's a real stalwart now of the wargaming community on YouTube. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that I, I came across you because I saw your name uh, in the chat and I thought, I recognise that name because I've been <laughs> looking at some books on Amazon um, and uh, I'd just purchased one, uh, which uh, was in the shadow of... Now, my French isn't great. Is it Bois or Bois, Hugo? Um, I think it's pronounced Bois, Bois Hugo, Hugo uh, which talks about the Battle of Luz and the, in particularly the Eighth Lincolns at that battle. And we're going to go on to talk about that shortly. Um, but I wonder, Nigel, if uh, if we could just have a little bit of a rundown on on your background, uh, how you got first got interested in the First World War, uh, and I know you're a war gamer as well. So a little bit about your war gaming history that would be great, and then uh, we'll we'll get into talking about your books. So I mean, I le I left school and became an indentured engineer actually to start off with um i was apprenticed engineer for four years um mechanical engineer so i sort of took a piece of raw metal and built things out of it and put things together and uh i did you know that, that that's that was my early career and then um i discovered the open university uh which was life-changing for me so i under I studied their um, arts foundation course and passed that and uh, went on to do a little bit more. And then 
um, my interest in the academia uh, meant that you know I sort of sold up and, and went to university full time and uh, I've been a, a lifelong learner so um, my first degree was in English and American literature and it's it was interesting when I was studying in the open university history didn't really turn me on yeah. that much I was I just thought it was well well not really that doesn't really excite me in the same way that literature yeah. did but that was a long time ago and um but um and then um a- after studying i've sort of w- worked in the university sector and uh, i work now for a health and social care related professional body so um that 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 keeps me busy i work full time um but um um, I mean, my, my interest in the First World War was sparked by the discovery of my great grandfather's service record um, on a well-known genealogy site. Um, and I can still remember that moment when in those days, you know, the, we didn't have broadband. We had, you know, sort of dial <laughs> yes. up and download. Yeah. And I can, I, I can remember the PDF file rolling down the screen and then I saw my great grandmother's name and then my great aunt's um her daughters and um the, the hair on the back of my neck you know stood up it was one of those really exciting yes. moments and there were 18 pages of my great grandfather's service record oh there and uh, you know he, his the memory of his service in the first world war was very patchy within the family. They thought he'd been a prisoner of war for four years. And in actual fact, he was taken prisoner of war in September 1918 and was home for Christmas. Um, But what we did find out is that, you know, obviously the battalions that he served in um, and, you know, by, you know, starting to unpick that and discover that, um, I joined um, the Great War Forum, which was really very helpful. And then the Western Front Association, um, and that's how my interest in the First World War started. And it, it's, I mean, that would be about 2010. So I'm a relatively relative newcomer uh, in relation to some of my peers in interest with the First World War. But the First World War is, is sounds a bit nerdy, but with me every single day. Um, there isn't there isn't a day goes by where you know, I haven't engaged in Twitter around the First World War or picked up a, a book or an article um, about the First World War and, and, and read that. Um, but it's, you know, it was the discovery of my great grandfather's service records that really did you know, get me into the First World War and, and then a journey that's taken me, you know, into academia um, and then to publishing, um, you know, uh, uh, well, three, three things really. I had a an article on 1915 published in the Western Front Association uh, journal Stand 2 um, that was entitled 1915 a, a, a difficult year and then um, it with engaging with um, conferences first world war conferences I, I came across you know Helion publishing uh, Helion and Co and um, uh, spoke to um, Duncan Rogers, the managing director of Helion, and you know, sort of talked about had this idea of a of a book in in my mind about the Eighth Lincoln St. Luce, and uh, we had a really good and an engaging conversation, and you know, really encouraged me to submit a a sort of um, you know a proposal for yeah. the book, and I, I remember saying to him, we had a conference at the Tally Ho Centre in Birmingham. 
um, and saying to him, I think, do you know what? I don't think there's very much more than about 15,000 words yeah. in this. And he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll publish it. And anyway, it, it ended up being almost three times right. that. Um, and, um, you know, and in the journey of researching the, the, the you know, the eighth Lincolns um, at the Battle of Luz, took me to the Imperial War Museum. It took me to Kew and the National Archives. It took me to local uh, county archives. It, it meant that I met people that I'd never would have engaged with before. So it's been a life-changing experience. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I've, I've got a similar experience, I think, uh, Nigel, in that um, there's barely a day will go by when I don't think about uh, the conflict or mm. pick up a book about it or, or engage with yeah. somebody over Twitter. And it, it can become quite consuming, can't it? You, this, this interest. It can, yeah. and it's, it, I don't think it's unfair to call it a passion of mine to say that uh, um, it, it does consume a lot of my waking time when I'm not thinking about uh, work or, or family, but yeah, it's the same for me. It's the same for me, Sean. I mean, but in in the writing of my two books, I mean, all of that work was done during my spare time, so it would be mostly um, the researching and the writing would be done between eight pm and ten pm on weekdays, and then Saturdays and Sundays, and and then visiting the Western Front itself, you know, special trips with friends from the Western Front Association. Um, I mean, I, I've got a very you know close group of of friends that you know have been with me over to the Western Front are the sort of, um, you know, some, some of the tours that we've done have been, you know, to, 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 to go and see particular headstones and graves and, and battle sites directly related to the research that I'm undertaking. So, you know, they, 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 they've been really good in, in the sense that, uh, you know, I said, you know, can we go here and can we go there? And, and the tour's been around that sort of uh, itinerary and that, and that's been fantastic. Yeah. And, I don't think a lot of people appreciate just how close it is, how easy it is to get to these sites, um, mm -hmm. no matter where you live in, in the country, really. I mean, I, I live uh, slap bang in the middle. It's about four hours down to the coast, an hour on the ferry, and then an hour's drive the other side, and you're right in the middle of it, aren't you? Um, That's right. So it's, yeah. it's really not a big thing to get down there and, and walk these fields. Um, and it's interesting what you say there, because I know in the pre-ramble we were talking about Paul Reed, who I've spoken to on the podcast. Mm. He famously says the last page hasn't been written yet on the First World War, and it's unlikely to because there's just such a wealth of things to yeah. study, sources and uh, original sources and so many interpretations of uh, what caused the war, the course of the war, how it ended. Uh, and it being a world war, so it's it's far more than just the Western Front, uh, which yeah. I, I, I admit I, I, I tend to concentrate on in my reading of it, but it, I, I'm well aware that it was a world uh, war. Um, and there's a lot a lot out there, isn't there, to occupy our time and keep us busy. So uh... No, I agree. I think, you know, on the Western Front, there's still not a lot being written on 1915. Yeah. It's a sort of forgotten year. Lot and fourteen and the early engagements, sixteen and the Somme, and you know thereafter, 
17 with Arras and 30 and then 1918 you know the the Kaiser slash and the you know the, the final 100 days to victory but then you know the, the war in Africa there's not a lot on on Africa um Mesopotamia there's a couple of books on that uh, and we'll we'll touch on Mesopotamia a bit later on and Palestine and and elsewhere yes, yeah. um so you're absolutely right the last page has hasn't been yes. turned um but the two books that you've written Nigel um are western front based so let let's just stay on the western front um and yeah it's interesting what you say about 1915 it it feels like the forgotten year i think the only book i've ever read on 1915 is the Lynn McDonald uh book i uh-huh. and I've, I I love uh, the book and she's recently passed away hasn't she so uh, yeah she has yeah um those those books were my sort of formative learning uh, on the First World War. Uh, I remember being given, they called it Passchendaele by a, a friend and being gripped and yeah. staying up most of the night reading that. But uh, we'll, yeah. we'll stick, let's stick to the, the Western Front then. So uh, you're a member of the Western Front Association. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a founder member of the Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland branch of the uh, Western Front Association um and you know you know, sort of engaged with uh the branch uh, sat on the committee um been a regular speaker um at the branch meeting um and and elsewhere as well so uh, northampton and uh, uh yeah elsewhere so yes yeah, so, i mean it's a really important organization um and certainly that's how you know my interest was developed um by meeting other members of the Western Front Association and uh, going to meetings with them and, and actually going on tour with them as well. Yeah, they do some important work, don't they? And um, mm. they're very easily accessible. There's quite a lot of content on YouTube, um, but mm. also uh, through the website. Uh, and I would imagine most people have got a local branch, uh, which isn't too far away from them. Uh, if, if they seek them out, there's certainly one uh, in in Staffordshire that uh, I'm a member of. Um, how so? How long have you been involved with them? So you, you've been involved for quite a while, by the sounds of it, because you've you've sat on the uh, the board and uh, and done lots of talks. Well, on the local branch uh, committee, yeah. yes, but um, um, I mean, I think that must have been maybe 2012 yeah. i remember setting up the first meeting we had peter hart come oh wow speak. um and uh we i we hired a uh, local venue um in, in this i'm based in leicester yeah. so in in leicester city center um and uh, it's just gone from strength to strength and uh, i very much enjoy uh, going to those meetings and uh, the crowds um are really friendly and engaging and ask great questions. But uh, I mean, on top of that, um, I also was involved with a, a local um, history group which we set up in uh, 2014 um, to research the men on our local war memorial uh, in the part of Leicester where I live, which is uh, in Oadby. So there's about 70 or so uh, chaps remembered on that uh, war memorial. And um, so that was that was quite a lot of work. Um, the group was called Ode B Remembers 1914-1918. And it was uh, financially supported by the OB Residence Forum. So I'm very grateful uh, for that. And we set out and we 
established about three public exhibitions a year. Um, and I, I think I spoke at all yeah. of them. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, we did the first expedition we did was exhibition we did was uh, on the first casualties, the men that fell in 1914 uh, from ODB. That led to speaking engagements at local secondary school, um, at the local mosque when I spoke about the, the Indian Corps. Um, the Boys Brigade, the Women's Institute, and uh, so we had, like I say, three exhibitions each year in 2014, 15, 16, 17, and 18, and we ended up having a, a website that supported all of the research that uh, myself and the other volunteers uh, had undertaken, and we published a book at the end of this as well. So I think that was a sort of fantastic piece of of work for you know local people to do, and I remember. Um, having a conversation with some you know, sort of well-known uh, historian who sort of scoffed at that a little bit, you know, trying to marshal um, volunteers who didn't know that steel helmets weren't worn in 1914. And they'd come to me and say, oh, Nigel, I've got these fantastic photographs of the, you know, the Leicesters in the trenches in 1914, and there'd be all steel helmets. And uh, I'm sorry, we can't use these. That's actually inaccurate. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, we got there in the yeah. end. We got there in the end, and, and it was a learning curve for them as much as it was for me. So whilst I was secretary for um, the ODB Remembers uh, history group, I had to sort of historical oversight over all of the work that was published. So I sort of proofread everything pretty much. Um, but it was a, a great community effort. And as I say, you know, the the uh, support from the residents forum was uh, we couldn't have done that without them. And, uh, and you know, we, we in total, we had at least uh, 15 exhibitions and we used uh, local faith centres for those and local community centres and uh, uh, the community you know came along and and supported us and uh, you know it, it was great to see you know 30 40 50 60 people uh, you know in the audience all willing and eager to hear about um, their forefathers or people that had lived in the village you know sort of 100 years or so ago and um, and what had happened to them. Uh, that's really great that is and one of the questions I was just thinking there was how was it received by the community obviously supported by um, the the local community uh, the residents um, people but uh, how great that they got involved and, and showed such a lot of interest and supported uh, the, mm. this project um, how, how was it received in the schools Oh, it's interesting. I, I sort of gave a sort of general overview. I, I don't think I changed any of the students' minds. They, I think they they'd had a fixed view on on, on field marshal Craig. Right. Um, I think I, I mean, I come to the war with a, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I studied at Birmingham University, and many of my former uh, tutors are now at um, yeah. Wolverhampton University, and. You know that I, I've taken on board you know, a, a, a lot of that scholarship, um, so I suppose you might call me a revisionist historian. Uh, where you know Haig was in a very very difficult position, and you know it wasn't he he didn't kill British soldiers. German bullets did, or Turkish bullets did, or um, it, and the Germans, you know, maybe they could, they should or you know, could or should have won the war, but their generals were perhaps a little bit less inept than ours were um, and I think it all came together on the Western Front in 19 in 1918 and that's also very true in the Middle East as well where Allenby you know clearly 
defeated the Turks in uh, in 1918. And, and we'll touch on that a little bit because my second book on the Second Leicester is actually Second Leicester served in Mesopotamia okay. in 1916 and 1917, and then in Palestine in yeah. 1918. Um, and I think the the, the actions. Um, during the First World War in Palestine in 1918, there are a few books on it, but it's not as well known as the Western Front. And uh, you know, there, there, there's like it feels like Blitzkrieg actually in the Palestine when when uh, Allenby, uh, you know, gets all of his resources together and uses cavalry and the Royal Air Force, and there are actually battles of annihilation right. um, in, in in Palestine. So. Um, yeah, maybe we'll touch on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you're a big fan of Gary Sheffield and uh, uh, the others uh, at the Wolverhampton University, where uh, I, I know Gary's uh, released a, a book, hasn't he, on the diaries of uh, Haig? Yes, I've used that a lot. That's a really important piece of work, actually. Uh, I mean, I've been to um, the National Library of Scotland and, and read uh, Douglas Haig's um, diary, the, the the version that Doris's wife typed yeah. up, and that's quite an incredible thing to do, you know. The, the, there's you can't take a camera in there, so all, all the notes that you have to take have to be handwritten wow. in pencil. Wow. Um, but in turning those pages, he has in those pages pinned um, letters from um, Joffre and Foch. and uh, one of the most amazing things was that I turned a page and there was a a watercolor pinned to those pages and it had the most vibrant color even though it's over 100 years old and um you know that and that's one of the one of the most fantastic things about going to the archives is you never know what's going to yeah. be in there yeah um and you turn a page over and can be completely surprised or shocked or disappointed in equal measure well you're touching history there aren't you you're not just you reading are. about yeah. it you're actually in some cases yeah. Uh, touching histories especially when you're looking at war diaries or or letters uh, that are original absolutely i mean i mean the correspondence the, the, around the official history on the battle of Lusa uh, that's in, in the national archive and i remember reading douglas haig's pencil annotations in the margin on the draft of the official history on the battle Goodness of Lusa. me and I'm thinking, I'm holding this piece of paper that Douglas Haig has. <laughs> Douglas Haig wrote. His DNA is on that. You know, like how incredible yeah. is that? You know, so. That is incredible. Yes. Yeah, goodness me. I mean, I've ne absolutely never had the pleasure to do that, but I can just imagine the thrill uh, as a historian mm. yourself to be able yeah. to have that link to the past. Uh, just yeah, just incredible. Okay, well, uh, let's, let's uh, touch on your first book then. Um, We've uh, yep. we've mentioned that 1915 is often the overlooked year of the war. Um, any any idea why that is? Well, I think you know people pay a lot of attention to the initial engagements in 1914. You know, the Battle of Mons and then the retreat, and then it gets into nasty, horrible, cold, dirty trench warfare, which might not be very interesting. Um, and then it you know sort of tumbles over into 1915 and you know the old army pretty much had been d destroyed by uh the end of 1914 19 the early 1915 yeah. 
and we were rebuilding we were rebuilding manpower we had an acute lack of officers um you know equipment um the shells crisis of 1915 you know we didn't have enough guns didn't have enough heavy guns didn't have enough shells i mean operations were called off because we'd run out of ammunition for for our for yeah. our guns um and the british that you know sort of take a, a back seat a little bit perhaps in 1915 because we were still building our army you know the kitchener armies were still in yes. training um um uh, in england and elsewhere um and uh we, we were about biding our time but by the middle of 1915 you know the french were struggling with the you know volume of casualties and work they were doing on the western front and also in russia um the, the russians were struggling against the germans and we had to step up to the plate so to speak um one of the things about the battle of loose um and i sort of remember the quote from kitchener is and i'll paraphrase this probably poorly but he said something along the lines that we must act with all of our energy um, and do our utmost to help the French, um, even though it might we might suffer very many casualties yeah. indeed. But what he was also thinking about was the Russian front as well, because his grand idea was for the, um, the Kitchener armies to arrive on the Western Front in 1917, win the war and win the peace. But he was relying on the French and the Russians um, to hold the Germans until 1917, when the Kitchener armies would be ready. And the uh, Russians had been really very severely beaten, um, and something had to be done. And also, uh, we were under pressure from the French to contribute uh, more fully. Yeah. And uh, and that's partly the reason why we uh, we, were, we, we, we we took on the Battle of Loos. Because the, the British Army was always considered um, subservient to the French, wasn't it? And certainly in the command sense, that they were the primary uh, army and that we were there to support the French. That's true. Um, I mean, the British Army was tiny compared yeah. to the French Army, um, certainly, certainly at the beginning of the war. I mean, we just sent a, a couple of army corps uh, over in 1914. And obviously, uh, um, the British Army before um, the First World War was mostly, you know, to a, a colonial police yes. force. Um, so, you know, we needed soldiers on the northwestern frontier in India to protect India from... Although, yes. <laughs> although obviously, <laughs> um, and um, you know, so we were a colonial police force, and we were never uh, had a con you know had a conscripted army like France and Germany, um, but you know, and it was very late in the day in 1914 when Belgium and uh, Belgium had been invaded. Whether you know people weren't clear whether we were going to go to war or not, um, but it was decided that we we did, and plans were enacted. British Expeditionary Force got over there uh, without much mishap, but then you know um, um, met headlong, you know superior and certainly in numbers and perhaps in training and in officers, yeah. uh, the German army and forced into retreat for a very long time, um, and, and then rebuilding back from that. But uh, you know the, the 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 old army, the regular army, pretty much. Um, had, as I said, it was been destroyed by the end of 1914, and then it's rebuilding, and then the introduction of territorial forces, and then gradually the introduction of uh, Kitchener New Army 
uh, battalions and, uh, and um, formations. Um, you know, in, in 15, we've got um, the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, uh, which, you know, was a, a success for us. Um, you know, we actually attacked uh, and uh, drove out the Germans from from the village. I think um, I've heard it described as nothing more than a, quite a large trench raid. Right. But for us, you know, it was uh, um, yeah, a, 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 you know, a sign of yes. success. Um, and um, and 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 then, but the the the, the, success, the part of the success for Nerve Chapelle was that. There was one British artillery piece for every six yards of ground to be attacked, but by the time we came to loose, because the the the, the battlefield was quite, well, if you walk from Hohenzollern Redoubt down to um, the the town of Loose itself, we had one British gun for every hundred so every every hundred and forty or so yards of German front. Right. So that the firepower that we could get at Neuve Chapelle wasn't really to be repeated until 1917 right. um, at, at Third Um And uh, that was part of the problem, is the United Kingdom gearing up for a war economy. You know, so, you know, was it fa famously Napoleon called as a nation of small shopkeepers yes, or something? Right. And uh, so we, you know, and we engaged the war as business of usual. We thought that you know the Royal Navy would be able to starve out the German nation by blockade and stuff like that. And but in actual fact there's a lot of fighting obviously that went on uh, on the Western Front and, and that's where uh, the, the, the the war had to be fought and lost against the Germans because they were were our you know, main uh, arch uh, um, enemy yeah. there. Um, were we um uh, were we caught on the hop then with this lack of um, supply of of shells and bullets and ammunition? Were we caught on the hop or was it mismanagement or was there somebody who sort of mishandled that situation? Why were we so short of ammunition? Because we never envisaged going to war in, 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 in a major engagement like the yeah. Western Front. As I said earlier, the British army was mostly a colonial police yeah. force you know when when uh, you know um the, 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 there was trouble it, uh, you know in one of the colonies then british soldiers were there to to resolve that issue and i'm using my words carefully yeah. here uh, we never envisaged being engaged in a in a huge war like this um and that and that's why you know we we didn't have a huge standing yeah. army um um but um you know so we had to catch up but the important thing is i think to remember in four years we went from a hundred thousand men in the field that's when the british expeditionary force landed in france to 1918 you've got five million men under yeah. arms huge effort uh, uh, absolutely absolutely and the other, the, 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 I know, well, there were lots of important things perhaps to to talk about, but officers are really important. And in the early engagements, including and leading up to Loose and during Loose, there were huge officer casualties. And I think Sir William Robertson, um, uh, so if we continue like this, to lose officers like this, you know, the British Army will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. 
um, and uh, it was just was was not sustainable. I mean, the the, the, the officer casualties. I mean, the eight Lincolns, for example. Um, they they lost all, but four of their officers at the Battle of Loos. Um, and partly part of the reason that for that is is that they sent four back as a sort of a cadre to, to you know to, to organize things and then after the battle i think there were two more returned that had been wounded so there were eventually there were six officers um out of the 28 that went into action wow. on the 26th of uh, september 1915 i, I think uh, you can't sustain no. that level of loss in officers because you've got no you, your command and control breaks yes. down i mean command and control was really difficult during the first world war as it was um you know, as soon as the men went over the top, you've pretty much lost command and control. Yes. And, you know, and that's why the the, the junior officer casualties um, are so high. You know, the left second lieutenants and the lieutenants that went yeah. with them. I think the, the average life expectancy for a lieutenant was about yes. six weeks. Yeah. And that's, that's there's, there's a book, I think, isn't there, called Six Weeks. Uh, and I was, I was just thinking yeah. of that as you mentioned it. Um, yeah, that, I mean that's just absolutely shocking, isn't it? Level of attrition of the mm. uh, the officer officer class. Um, okay, so uh, lose then. Uh, it's not a battle that I'm I'm not familiar with. I've I've never visited the area. Um, what what was the lead up to it, and and what um, what was the planning that went into place around lose? So, so John French at this time isn't very well. Uh, I think mentally and physically. Um, but he's under a huge amount of pressure from the French uh, to support them, in, you know, trying to drive the Germans out of yeah. France. And uh, so we, we, um, Kitchener goes over to, to France and tells Sir John that he must support the French in this action. Kitchener's mind is always on the Eastern, well, it's partly on the Eastern Front. Make sure if whatever we do in France will have an effect on the Eastern Front, it might draw reserves from the Eastern Front over to the Western Front. We, we, we need to keep Russia in the war. Um, Haig is charged with putting the battle plan together. He goes over, has a look at it, and um, the, 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 the area of France is, at that time, a coal mining area. There, there are pits and uh, you know, pit shafts and slag heaps and um, all of, you know, all, all, all of that. Very, very heavily yeah, industrialised. Yeah. Uh, and I think he says something like, this is really unfavourable ground. You know, you can't see, um, you've got buildings and miners' cottages, you've got slag heaps, you've got pit, uh, pit, pit equipment and, and paraphernalia all over the place. But nonetheless... Um, uh, he 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 plans for this, but he I think he does realise that there isn't enough artillery, um, to 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 be able to subdue the Germans. So there is a new weapon that the Germans already tried out, which was poisonous yeah. gas, and he puts his faith in gas uh, to supplement um the um, the artillery bombardment, and so there's a four day artillery bombardment. I think the Germans really don't pay very much attention to it because it's it's not very heavy, you know it's you know one gun for every 140 yards of German yes. line, that's not really very heavy, 
Um, but the the the, the, the a release of gas, and then, and then the release of gas. Um, um, Professor Peter Doyle would talk for much more eloquently than me about this. But for gas to be effective, it has to sort of it works on gravity, so it rolls downhill and drops into trenches and if it needs to go uphill, it needs to be blown by wind. And there's a famous moment uh, just before the Battle of Luce where um, the gas officer lights a cigarette and it, the, 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 the smoke from the cigarette drifts gently across, you know, towards the German right. lines. And Haig says, yes, let's go. But Robert Graves famously describes in Goodbye to All That that on the bit of uh, the front where he is, that he calls it a bloody balls Right. On the part of the front where the 8th Lincolns eventually end up, which is 8th Lincolns are part of 63rd Brigade, part of 21st Division, they are twinned with 24th Division, which form the reserves. The guards are also part of this, but they are a day or so behind. Um, so where the gas is effective... The 15th Scottish Division actually capture the town of Luce and it's like hand to hand fighting and fighting in buildings um, and run on to what's called a famous point in the battlefield called Hill 70. And they actually hold that or capture that and go beyond it, then meet heavy German fire and have to um, re retire back to Hill 70. This is on the 25th of, um, of September 1915. Yes. So there are there is some success. The, the Scottish Ninth Division upon the northern part of the battlefield capture the Hohens Holland Redoubt, which is an amazing achievement. And then the 15th Scottish Division capture uh, the town of Luce and Hill 70. And then there's a territorial division, 40, sorry, 47th Division capture all their objectives. And th this includes uh, slag heaps and bits of the coal. I mean, it's a whole coal mining area. I, I, I could completely understand looking at the original sort of maps uh why Haig ne wouldn't necessarily want to attack here unless he absolutely had to but um um so anyway eighth lincoln's are a part of well my, my grandfather is a part of that unit so uh they have a number of night marches up to up to the front um that the, there's a discussion around whether Sir John French wants to keep the reserves under his control until the last available moment. But all of the um, military doctrine is that you should have your reserves close at hand to exploit any any gaps or uh, any weakness in the in the enemy's defences. And, and and this is doctrine for both Germans and and the British. But on the way on the way up to the front. The um, 21st Division's um, Chief Royal Engineer works out that they're short of 39,000 gallons of water. So this is half of the division's um, requirement. So he reports to um, Forrest E. Walker, who's the um, Commander-in-Chief of 21st Division, and he reports up to um, uh, 11 Corps. And I don't think really anything's done about it. They they, you know, they, they just want to get on with the war. Um, and the other thing that's really important about as the reserves are moving moving up is is the logistical control behind the battle. So as the reserves are moving up, you've got 
wounded returning, you've got German prisoners of war, you've got cavalry units rushing forward, ammunition rushing forward, you've got police officers saying you can't cross here without the you know particular permit and stuff yeah. like that. So there's an example of that, uh, Sean, is that the 8th Lincolns managed to march two miles in six hours. Okay. Because they were halted, you know, the, the 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 roads were just wide enough to, to have four men abreast. Right. But if you've got cavalry coming or artillery coming or prisoners or wounded, then, then, then you know, it, it, it's really very difficult. And then, so what happens is that they actually um, get to, um, uh, there's a place at the Battle of Loose, it's a place called Dud Corner, yep. where all the, the shells had fallen and they were pretty much duds. There's a the loose memorial to the missing is there and um the, the, there's a discussion between the eighth lincoln's officers about they got no orders no maps um they were told to conform with the troops on their right and they're marching across german, british and german trenches in the dark um so they had to put planks across trenches and so that means single file it's really very very difficult and it's pouring with yeah. rain and Haking, who was in charge of 11 corps um, had removed the field cookers so that the men might move forward quickly but that meant they hadn't been fed so they had no breakfast and they have inadequate supplies of water so in the imperial war museum there's a testimony from a sergeant who describes trying to catch the rainwater in his waterproof cape so that they could have a drink. Me. They were they were ordered to retain their greatcoats and as they're marching across the battlefield the greatcoats get heavier with rain and heavier with mud. And the, the testimony from this very same sergeant was saying he was utterly literally drained and exhausted by the time they got to Boaugo from the physical exertion of crossing the yeah. battlefield. Um, because because sorry to interrupt is, because the, 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 the um i know that having uh, read your book that you sort of fly in the face of the the received thinking of uh, mm. the performance of these reserve battalions at loose i think you you were if not the first one of the first to give this revised look at how the british performed is that, is that right? That I know that um, the professor, is it Professor Simkin, uh, writes the forward. Um, who he does? Peter Simkin writes the forward. Yeah, who who um, makes the comment that he, he hopes that this will be uh, the book that will reassess and reevaluate in other historians' minds just how mm. the the British troops uh, performed because. You've just described an absolutely hellish march uh, across the battlefield with no food in the rain yeah. mm. um, before they've gone into action. Yeah, it's just horrendous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean they, I mean they set off around about eleven o'clock on uh, uh, in the morning on the twenty fifth of October. Sorry, twenty fifth of September. Um, they would have been awake, obviously, much before then, and they had had night marches before that as well. So whether they were tired or rested, I'm not entirely sure. Sir John French describes them as singing um, as uh, they pass him. 
Um, but once they get, actually get in onto the battlefield proper, crossing the British and German trenches was really very arduous. Uh, you're not, they're not fed properly. They're not watered properly. They don't know where they're going. Um, it's dark. Um, you know, they can see the town of Luce on fire in front yeah. of them. Um, and uh, miraculously, using compass bearing, they fall. They 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 get to Boatugo, and this is a place the wood where where they should be. You know, they're fired on as they approach it. And uh, I'm not entirely sure whether they're fired on by the British or by mm. the Germans. Um, but one of the one of the criticisms of the Kitchener uh, battalions is that they don't use fire and movement uh, in the same way that perhaps the regular army might do. But it's absolutely clear from the evidence that that's what they right. do. They fire, drop to the ground, move, fire, drop to the ground, uh, and so on and so forth. When they take over the positions at Boatugo, the relief is really interesting in that the soldiers that were there pretty much said, um, "Hello, goodbye." Okay. <laughs> there was no, there was no, there was no proper, no proper handover, yes. and and because it's dark, um, there's you know, the, 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 you know, they can't really see what their, their surroundings around them. So what happens is that there's three companies of the Eighth Lincolns on the southern part of Boatugo and one company to the northern part. So they are actually separated by the wood itself. Mm-hmm. And then to the left of the, um, they're looking um, eastwards, to the left of this single company of 8th Lincolns is the, the West Yorks and the Yorks and Lanks. And then in the brigade is also additionally the Somerset Light Infantry. And they're in what's called Chalk Pit and Chalk Pit Wood, which is a little bit behind them. And um, so the plan for the next day, because Haig thinks it's on the on the cusp of victory um, or breakthrough at least. So the plan for the next day is to to push on. Meanwhile, during the night, the Germans um, muster their reserves and 22 additional battalions of Germans arrive in the vicinity of where the 21st, 24th divisions uh, yeah. are. Um what what is known because you can tell this from the trench maps is that the german second line has machine gun emplacements and is wired so it's very, uh, so on the second day the the whole german line is is much more heavily defended by soldiers but and and you don't have the the the, the poisonous gas on the second no. day and you have a very poor artillery bombardment so that the first action in the vicinity of Boatugo and the town of Luce is an assault on Hill 70 by remnants of the 15th Scottish Division and um, a, a battalion of um, sorry um, a brigade rather of uh, from the 21st Division so Haig takes bits of the reserves and and shares them out to other parts of the front so rather than keeping all of the reserve together 62nd brigade for example goes and supports 15th scottish division's assault on hill 70 and 73rd brigades um from 24th division goes up to foss 8 which is further north a, a, a way away um so um the 
um, there aren't any trenches um, on this part of the front. So um, where the battle, where loose is, when you dig down, you only have to dig a foot or two down before you hit hard chalk. Right. So what had happened is, is when the I think the, the um, Scottish battalions had dug down and sort of hit this hard chalk and stopped there. So what there were were sort of, you know, maybe knee high at best, little rifle yes. pits. There was no concept of trenches whatsoever. There were little rifle pits that weren't joined up together. In fact, there's testimony from Lincoln's officers where they're actually throwing notes from one rifle pit to another because that's the only way that they could communicate wow. with each other. And um, the, 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 the 63rd Brigade commanding officer calls a officer's conference. And in that, uh, on the way to that conference, a number of senior officers are wounded. So the commanding officer for 8th Lincolns, um, uh, Hen uh, Harold Walters, is completely deafened by a shrapnel shell burst. And uh, Leggett, uh, one of his, um, um, uh, an officer from one of the other battalions, is killed. Um, and sixty um, third um, brigade wanted wanted to push on straight away, but the orders were to wait until eleven o'clock, and then resume the attack. Then, however, the Germans infiltrated through Bois Hugo, the wood itself. And poured uh, and poured fire into the backs of the three companies that were facing sort of southwards, and um, dislodged those three companies of the Eighth Lincolns, and then, <coughs> excuse me, the remaining company of the Eighth Lincolns um, just laid flat and you know, sort of took fire. Uh, what's important to uh, remember is that the left-hand part of 63rd Brigade was what we call completely in the air. So there's a huge gap there. So when the Germans advanced, um, the West Yorks and the, Lan uh, the, the, uh, um, the um, Lancasters actually retreated. Um, and uh, But importantly, uh, this single, um, sing single company of 8th Lincolns and the Eight Somerset Light Infantry actually held their positions. Uh, the thing about Bois uh, Hugo as well is that you could not see the enemy inside because it was, you know the, the the trees stood about thirty to forty foot tall. Yeah. It was a very mature wood, uh, thick undergrowth, and you you know and obviously with you know modern rifles, there's no smoke or anything like that, like there would have been at Waterloo. Yes. So you couldn't actually see who was shooting at you. We're not talking right? about tree stumps here, are we, that we would be familiar with from 1916, 1917. This is a, no, not this at is all. a, a mature, thick woodland. Yeah. So at, at 11 o'clock, the um, 24th Division advances. Uh, with, um, and uh, they come across the German wire. Um, and that's as far as they yep. get. And, uh, you know, the, the German wire is completely untouched. One of the interesting things that I found out in my research is that the 21st Artillery, 21st Division's Artillery, had no no trench map. Okay. So they did not know where to fire, other than, uh, you know, when they did fire, they wanted, obviously, to miss British troops. That So they fired over their heads and fired beyond. Long. yeah. Yes. So the artillery, really... Um, you know, 
wasn't very helpful yeah. at all. And so 63rd Brigade sort of collapsed as an effective fighting unit. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the 24th Division and what was in, uh, uh, 20, and 60, <coughs> excuse me, 64th Brigade, you know, advanced to the German lines. A Victoria Cross was actually won in this action by a member of the 9th Suffolk's, who was a part of the 24th yeah. Division. A chap called Arthur Saunders, you know, he had almost half of his leg blown away, but stuck by an officer and opened fire with a, a Lewis gun on the advancing Germans. So the Germans were held up by elements of 8th Lincoln's, uh, 8th Somerset Light Infantry and members of the, you know, what was left of the reserves. Yeah. Um, and then, to cut a long story short, um, uh, the 8th Lincoln's held out until about 6pm in the evening. So that's probably 18 hours of fighting, marching and fighting. And they ran out of ammunition. I mean, they, they were robbing the dead of their own ammunition. And there is a story that um, an 8th Lincoln soldier attempted to surrender to the Germans by raising a, a white handkerchief, and he was promptly shot by one of his own officers. Oh, wow. um, so the, and so this is the, you know, the ferocity um, of the fighting, but when they when they ran out of ammunition, they were surrounded by German machine guns, and about 150 Eighth Lincolns were taken prisoners yeah. of war. Um, but they held up the Germans. The Germans could have advanced further if they'd all, you know, legged it or ran away. I mean, this is one when when I was a student at Birmingham. You know, one of the first seminars we had with Gary Sheffield, he said, you know, give me a, a sort of research question, and I sort of flippantly. So I said, you know, discuss the military effectiveness of 21st Division at the Battle of Luz. And uh, he just retorted without any without any hesitation whatsoever. And with all the authority of a professor said they bolted. And it was that was a was a moment for me to try and find out exactly as much as possible what actually happened. And that's how, how the book came to. to right. Be. So um, were you aware of your great grandfather's involvement at that point or? Well, I knew he had been fighting, and you know he was a member of the Eighth yeah. Lincolns, and uh, but he he didn't leave any sort of recollections. Um, the the you know we have his service records, so we we can follow his service throughout yes. the war. So we know he had joined the Eighth Lincolns in August nineteen fourteen, and we know from his service records that he went over to France in, on the tenth of September nineteen fifteen. And I know, for example, that he was wounded on the Somme in 1916 and that he was taken prisoner of war in uh, 1918. There were a couple of small newspaper articles about him. When he was, first of all, rec recorded as missing in 1918 and the, the Grantham Journal, uh, his home uh, hometown, recorded that he had been involved in a lot of fighting recently. So, you know, the, the third eat, yeah. basically. Um, but he survived the war, fortunately. Um, but uh, sadly, he, he died before I was born. So um, that's sort of off the cuff, uh, off the top of your head remark uh, to a question mm. from Professor Sheffield set you out on, on this road then to writing this book eventually. That's right. Yeah. So, so how long did it take you to write the book altogether? Four years. Crikey, a lot of work in that four years, by the sounds of it. It, 
it was. I mean, bear in mind I was working full yes. time, and bear in mind I was I was starting from scratch, so I'd never, you know, I'd, you know, I, I, I mean, I'd written essays and reports and things, you know, as an undergraduate and a postgraduate and, you know, for work. But this was the first, really, the first piece of historical research that I'd I'd undertaken. Um, and I wanted to make sure it was, I, I wanted to be as accurate as I could be. And, and then it takes time to collect the data. So, you know, there are uh, letters in, you know, um, the Derbyshire uh, County Archives at Matlock, where one of the eight Lincoln's, um, um, his letters are there. Um, going down to the Imperial War Museum to scrutinise, you know, eight Lincoln's um, officer's testimony. What it also meant was I, I I discovered the grandson of one of the eight Lincoln's officers um, through my research. And I, I wrote to him and said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this work. You know, could we meet or could we chat? And he said, oh, somebody's already done that. They they you know, they came and and uh, used all of the, this material. And uh, so I got this book and it had been written by a journalist. Now, a journalist's point of view of military history is not going to be the same as a military historian's no. point of view of of history. So, anyway, eventually, to cut a long story short, I I, I persuaded him to meet, and um, we met, and uh, he sh he showed me his uh, grandfather's sort of artifact. So he'd still got his officer's sword and scabbard, um, some some but not all of his medals had a, a bayonet which they'd used as a fire poker so that had been eaten away by the flames and um, but this particular officer um called lionel mcnaught davis had served in africa in 1905 six seven yeah. something like that and he had while he was out there um a crocodile stuffed and the family still had this crocodile <laughs> in the shed oh my <laughs> so, <laughs> so paul mcnaught davis he said, I'll, I'll get you the crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to the shed and bought this like 10 foot oh crocodile out of the shed. It perfectly <laughs> <Really>? preserved. <laughs> but they've got socks over its over its paws, if that's yeah. what they're called, to, to make sure that the nails didn't fall out. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> so, but this guy, um, McNaught Davis, he was a, a captain. So he was a company... Um, company commander but he'd been in the army for 25 years before the first right. world war but had never once seen active service right. he, he'd been a draftsman he'd done something with balloons he'd served in africa but was no fighting he'd missed the boer war um and he was a like a, a senior sergeant in the lincolns and because he'd got all of this experience they made him a captain yeah. because of the shortage of officers and um, his uh, letters and maps and photographs are in the Brotherton Library in Leeds. Okay. So I went up to Leeds and photographed all of that evidence, and uh, and I, I spoke to Paul, his grandson, and photographed his artifacts. And uh, and then uh, after the book had been published, I had the honour and privilege to take Paul to the loose battlefields with some friends um, of mine as well and um, walked him over the battlefield and um, explained what happened and what the Germans were doing and where the 8th Lincolns, where their disposition yeah. was. 
and then we went to see um, where the 8th Lincoln's commanding officer had been buried, which is um, just a, a few miles behind uh, the, the town of Luce. Um, so that was a real pilgrimage yeah. um, for, for him and for me, actually. It's a real honour and a privilege to, 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 to do that. And uh, um, yeah, it's fantastic. And it's something that I'll remember always. Well, it's the book itself is incredibly fascinating. As I, I mentioned earlier, I'd already got it in my basket uh, in Amazon, and then your name popped up in the uh, in the chat, and it was like, "This is fate. <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need to buy this book." But uh, it had grabbed me because I don't know much about Loose, and I, I thought a, a, um, a regiment or battalion history of the battle is it, for me is a great place to start. As opposed, it's that sort of bottom up view as opposed to top down. Uh, from yes. the you know the uh, the generals, let's uh, see what the the men on the ground uh, thought about yeah. it. And it really is a fascinating book and 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 well Thank written. You. And I'm, I'll be putting a uh, a link up to it in the show notes. Um, just out of interest, you know if Gary Sheffield's read it. I don't know if you ought to send it, him a signed please. copy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I, I know uh, Gary's on Twitter and uh, I follow him and uh, uh, and follow his works. But um, highly, highly recommended. And this, I think, for me, uh, we are a wargaming podcast. Uh, will lead uh, mm -hmm. to some sort of recreation of uh, the Eighth Lincolns at Luz and around Bois Hugo. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll need to converse on that at some point, Nigel. And uh, we come should, up. yes. I think that. Yeah, work. I think it will. Uh, we'll come up with some ideas. I think as as to how we'll do that. Um, so, uh, having spent four years researching and writing uh, this book uh, for Helion, uh, you've gone on to write a second book uh, on the Lesters. Now, I, I yep. may have I may have um, been a little bit misleading uh, at the start of the interview. So, were the Lesters on the Western Front at all, or was it all out? in the Mesopotamia or Palestine or wherever it was you, you mentioned? At the beginning of the war, they were in India. Right. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they, they, they travelled uh, from India with the Indian yeah. Corps, um, so with, with thousands of uh, Indian troops, and uh, land, landed in France in late 1914. And in my view, the Indian Corps saved... The British Army from destruction. If they hadn't arrived in just in the nick of time, I think we would have been driven to the sea. Okay. Um, so having two additional corps of highly trained, um, experienced uh, soldiers um, saved the day somewhat. And so they they arrive on the Western Front, um, you know, sort of autumn. 1914 experienced some nasty dirty horrible you know trench warfare yeah. uh, towards the end of end of the war so they fought at you know Festubert 1914 Gavinci in 1914 where they actually captured two german maxim machine guns one of which resides in the uh, the local museum in in oh, Leicester right. okay uh, they experienced the christmas truce um, they were part of the Battle at Neuve-Chapelle uh, from the 10th to the 13th of March 1915, where William Buckingham actually won his VC. So the, the, there was one VC winner in the second Leicesters, and it was William yeah. Buckingham. And um, 
uh, he won his VC there. Um, and then they were engaged at Orbers Ridge uh, and Festival again in 1915. And then the Battle of Luce. Interestingly, one of the things about the Battle of Luce is there were a number of diversionary attacks. And these are hardly ever mentioned in, in the literature. Um, so there is one excellent book on the Battle of Luce by Nick Lloyd. Uh, I think it's simply called Luce 1915. Yes. But it doesn't mention the action at Petri, where the Indian Corps attacked as a part of diversion. And so what they were hoping is that this diversionary attack would draw reserves away from Luce. But I think my my study of that attack is the only study that's ever been published right. on the Indian Corps' uh, uh, attack, certainly in contemporary, contemporary literature uh, anyway. And then towards the end of 1915, they're transferred to Mesopotamia as a part of the Tigris Corps. So they, uh, I think they arrive in Mesopotamia sort of December 1915 as a part of the Tigris Corps to um, save Charles Townsend uh, forces at uh, Kut Alamara, where they're surrounded by, by the Turks. And then there's a series of battles uh, from January... 1916 um, uh, through to uh, the 29th of April when the, the Cook garrison surrenders. So there's this a sort of it, it's so different to the Western Front. Um, Western Front, obviously, you know, Europe, muddy trench lines. Um, in Mesopotamia, all much of the war in this part of. Uh, Many of the battles in this part of the war are fought alongside um, the River Tigris. Um, so that there are um, they 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 come against the Turks. The Turks retire. They came across another battle. The Turks retire. Another battle, and the Turks hold their positions. Um, and then the, the, to try and outwit the Turks, there's an, an amazing um, action called um, the Deluge Redoubt, where they march across the desert in the night um, to try and surprise the Turks. The Turks actually are still in their in their beds. They don't expect British forces to, 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 to turn yeah. up there. But the, the, the senior generals are so concerned about attacking without artillery bombardment that they wait and that waiting there um, is is fatal uh, to their attack. Um, and then there, there is another attack um, at the time, early April. And then people are getting more and more desperate because, you know, the, the, the troops at Kut Alamara are now on very bare minimum rations. I think, um, I mean, the poor Indian troops, uh, because they're vegetarian, have very, very little to eat. I think the, the British soldiers are eating horses and donkeys yes. and stuff like that so that uh, the indian troops have maybe flour uh, to make chapatis and stuff like that but very yeah. not much else um and then there's a german uh, sorry a turkish counterattack um and then there's a a forlorn hope where the royal navy attempt to get supplies to cut um by running the blockade along the tigris river uh, and that fails um and so you know, uh, the, the siege of Cook comes to an end on the on the 29th of April. And then after that, there's a bit of a lull. However, during this time, there's, you know, what we don't recognise is the weather 
plays a, a, a really significant part in the fighting. You know, the heat, I mean, in the summer in Mesopotamia, it gets to 50 degrees centigrade. I mean, I know I've only ever experienced 40 degrees centigrade and I could hardly walk just wearing shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> Trying to fight in that weather was it's just yeah, impossible. It's so in the, in the summer of 1916, you know, a thousand men a month are being sent to India um, because of disease or injury from the from the weather. There's, there's a lack of equipment. There's a, an appalling lack of medical services. And the government calls for what's called the, the, the Mesopotamia Commission, which is published during the war, much to the anger um, of the senior generals about the failings of the medical services. Um, so the Mesopotamian Commission report is published and, and highlights the failings of the very senior medical officers not doing enough. Um, the turning point for the troops in Mesopotamia is the r- arrival of um Lieutenant General Stanley Maud. Um, he he had uh, commanded 13th Division at Gallipoli, and with that you have a methodical general, somebody that plans, somebody that, you know, uh, you know it, it, it's a complete change around. And so Cut is recaptured on the 24th of February, uh, 1917, and that opens the door um, to go and capture Baghdad on the 11th of March, 1917. And this is a huge thing. I mean, it, I mean, it hardly gets mentioned in the literature, but capturing Baghdad, you know, the, the jewel of the yes. Middle East um, in 1917, I think the church bells are rung in England. Right. And the Second Leicesters were a part of that. And they had a sort of a, a regimental holiday um, uh, on the 11th of March um, in, in celebration of, of that. In, in, interestingly, the bell from Baghdad railway station is actually in the local museum. Oh, here. <laughs> right. So in my book, there's a photograph of it. Yeah, right. I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they repatriated that bell. It come from Germany. It was right. made in Germany, given to, to given the Turks. Cause what the, the Kaiser wanted to build a railway from, from Berlin all the way to Baghdad. Okay. And, and that was a part of, you know, him schmoozing <laughs> um, the, the, the Middle right. East. Um, but that, I mean, that was interesting because the, the museum opened early for me when there were no other visitors and no other members of the public. And they have these sort of, um, all their precious objects are behind, you know, sort of bulletproof glass and it's time sealed. When the guy actually opened the door, it sort of sucked all the oxygen from the room into the cave. (laughs) Hermetically sealed. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but then, um. So they 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 were in and around Baghdad, and then there was a sort of a a pursuit of the Turks, which paused for the summer, and then towards you know sort of the autumn they were um, advanced on a place called Tikrit, which is actually where Saddam Hussein um, was born. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so this is heading up towards yeah. Mosul, uh, the north of uh, the north of uh, what is now obviously modern modern yeah. day Iraq. Um, but then in um, just shortly after that, they were transferred to Egypt, and uh, then you had the the march um, offensive by the Germans on the Western Front, and a number of uh, divisions were transferred from um, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, as it was called, 
to the Western Front. And so Second Leicesters and their Indian comrades went over to uh, Palestine. And Allenby, I think, was, was able to use um, planning, superior forces. He used artillery, infantry, aircraft, cavalry, all joined up together, all working together. And uh, in September uh, 1918, there was a battle called the Battle of Megiddo. Um, and that really was a battle of annihilation. Um, it, it, it was amazing. I think you know, that within two days, an entire Turkish core had been destroyed. Um, there was mobile warfare, pursuit. Um, but for the second Leicesters, they were on the coastline. Um, so they uh, marched up past... Um, um, this is now mod what well uh, the modern day Israel, but uh, uh, they would have gone past what was Jaffa and Tel Aviv, right. um, up to Beirut, and then ended their war in Tripoli. Um, and um, the war in um, Palestine ended on the thirtieth of uh, of October, so a couple of days, pr pr you know, before uh, the armistice was called on on yes. the Western Front, but the I mean, the second Leicester's, uh, you know, their story is really amazing. Um, and they, you know, they, they have some really outstanding officers, including, wait for this, Major General Charles Blackout. No way. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, Incredible. So Blackadder was uh, commanding officer of second Leicester's when they were out in uh, India, uh, brought the battalion over to the Western Front, commanded them in 15, uh, 14 and 15 and then he was promoted um to be brigadier general for the gull war brigade wow. um and then um he was transferred to the 177th brigade which fought in um the easter uprising in 1916 yeah. and uh, he was involved in some of the court martials of the uh, republicans um after the uprising um and then uh, he was transferred to 38th Welsh Division um, and then saw his service out uh, in Southern Ireland, died in 1921. Um, you know, quite an incredible uh, service record and, and officer. But one of the things in the local Leicestershire Records Office are a huge bundles of letters um, by a Captain Donald Weir. I mean, I destroyed my eyesight trying to read grey pencil on grey paper, um, but it was worth every every yeah. second, every effort. And he served throughout the war uh, with the Second Leicesters, and and much of his testimony is embedded in my book as well. Um, and then is you know, sort of a, a biography of uh, William Buckingham, VC winner, and then was all, uh, uh, another little study within the book is on a shot at dawn. Um, where a chap had, you know, absented himself and um, was living with a French woman when he was uh, arrested by, um, uh, by, by the military police, and uh, his defence wasn't very convincing. He simply said something along the lines of, "I sort of lost my wits and I was trying to get back to the battalion," but in actual fact, he was cohabiting, I think, with this French right. woman. So, um, I, I've been to his headstone. Um, um, and uh, again, there's a photograph of that in the book. It sounds like a, a real um, work of um, passion and enthusiasm, and for for the topic, because um, 
as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the war in Mesopotamia uh, and Palestine is not as well known. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, amongst the the yeah, general true, populace absolutely. and and perhaps amongst histori- some historians as well, or or so, certainly not given the the credit uh, for which it deserves and its contribution to uh, the ultimate outcome of the war. Uh, yeah, the the the, um, the Western Front saw the first day of the Psalm and Passchendaele. These these are places that you can drive to very mm. quickly from England mm. and. Uh, generate such raw emotion but uh, that that story of the the turkish core being destroyed in two days it's just un, uh, unimaginable isn't it yeah i think 21st corps maybe i've got that wrong but yes i mean there was i mean the 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 german commanding officer uh, in palestine was almost captured by i think it was australian cavalry division he was still in pajamas uh, when they arrived, because they they just didn't expect them, because they moved moved yeah. so quickly. It was, a, you know, a fantastically well planned assault by Allenby. Yeah. Uh, he used, you know, sort of dummy soldiers um, and equipment, uh, and so people thought that you know he he was in a different place to where he was, and um, you know it was really very 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 successful and very reminiscent of Blitzkrieg in 1939. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and. Um... Allenby, of course, is, is a name that I think most uh, students, amateur students of history, mm. uh, will recognise. But um, the the scale of, of loss, and it's important, isn't it, when we're talking about this subject, um, it's important to remember that every single one of those Turkish soldiers uh, had a family and uh, hopes and dreams about his future and, and fighting for his country mm. just as much as anybody uh, serving with the British Army or the Commonwealth um, and, and that it's a real tale of human tragedy isn't it that uh, we're yeah. talking about and it's I think it's always always well to remember that. Um, it's interesting that um, I was talking to a Turkish colleague just a couple of days ago actually and he sort of pointed out a reference in my book to uh, Second Leicester's burying Turkish dead. And we think we've identified or he's identified from the evidence that I've provided uh, a burial site for a mass grave for Turkish Turkish casualties. Wow. Wow. That Well, that would be something, wouldn't it? If it's an, uh, previously yes. unidentified and it, um, your colleague's mm-hmm. been able to sort of identify where that is. But um so this came out in January 20, is that right? January last year? Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah. So um, have you got anything else on the on the blocks at the moment or are you taking a break? <laughs> well, I'm I, I've doing some work on um, a third volume on 59th, 2nd uh, North Midland right. Division uh, with, with again with Helion. Um, but um, the progress on that hasn't um uh, over the last year have been perhaps as uh, as fruitful as I would have wished because of the yes, pandemic of and uh, and and you know the, the way that my work has been um but yes the, 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 there is a, a a third book in in the pipeline but uh, um um I hope Helion won't mind me saying that uh, you know the, the the time scale for that will will need to move a, a little bit well I, I think in this in the circumstances that we found ourselves for the last 
16, 17 months, I think it's well understandable. But if it's uh, if it's a book on the North Midland division, I'll, I'll certainly be very interested in that because uh, that, that's where a, a yeah, lot of my family are, are from, from uh, North Staffordshire, uh, some from mm. South Staffordshire as well. But um, I did find it curious that uh, the Somerset Light Infantry are mentioned in your uh, uh, Shadow mm. of Wahugo because that's where uh, a relative, a, a great uncle of mine uh, served. He was with the 6th uh, Battalion, so I'm not quite sure he was at Luz. I can't, I've, I've never found any mention of him at Luz, but he, he was killed um, at Delville Wood uh, in August of 1916 on the Somme, yes. Um, but uh, I'll be interested to see if I can track him back there. I've only recently found out, mm. found out about this, this relative, so uh, some more digging to do, I think. Mm. Um, we mentioned at the start of the interview, Nigel, that as well as a published author and uh, academic, uh, historical <laughs> at- academic, uh, you are also a wargamer. We are a wargaming podcast. Uh, but I, I've, I've yeah. a feeling, well, I know because I've already asked you, uh, you're, you're in one of the larger scales, aren't you? I am. I mean, I mean, I suppose like, you know, boys of my age, um, I, I started off with airfix figures, um, so I mean I, I I mean I I started work when I was thirteen years old, right. and uh, you know for pocket money you went and, up a uh, chimney. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I I worked in a it, 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 you know as a butcher right. boy in a pork butcher shop in Lincolnshire, yeah. um, but it gave me a bit of an income, and I spent most of it um, on airfix models. So I think I built uh, almost all of the entire airfix catalog. Um, um, and that's you know that's that's where my I was more of a sort of a painter and and war gamer and so you know the, my my friends and I would make up our own rules yes. and, uh, and and have huge battles across you know somebody's lawn <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, um, and then as I sort of got older my interests changed um, but uh, I, I you know at school I you know we vikings and stuff like that and second world war um i was very interested in second world war um during my teenage years um and then i sort of discovered the english civil war and uh, read around that quite a lot and um i had a 15 millimeter english civil war army you know sort of royalists and um the, the yes. roundheads so regiments of uh, foot and cavalry and artillery as well and uh, um, one of the things that I suppose is well unique about me is that I sort of move on from things so I sort of gave away all of my airfix stuff to my cousin and as I got older I sort of gave away this entire 15 millimeter um, (laughs) English Civil War army to to a friend because I was moving house and we needed um, we needed space um but when when my you know i've got two children one of which is a son and uh um i you know i sort of thought that modeling uh, for me was a is a pastime in which it's really good for mental yes. health so when i'm doing that i'm completely relaxed completely focused on what i'm doing um and uh um i, I sort of built um uh lord of the rings yeah. type stuff um so i've got in the attic, I think somewhere there's or archive and and um, 
you know, all, all, all the heroes. Funnily enough, that's where my Lord of the Rings stuff is, actually. <laughs> uh, it's acting as insulation at the moment, but I do love it. I've, I've got quite a large collection of the, the Lord of the Rings um, stuff. But my, my, my main focus in terms of wargaming is the 19... It's the September 1939 right. campaign. Um, and um, I... So in the maybe 2016, sorry, 26, 27, 28, and so on and so forth, when, when my son was, was sort of half interested in this, um, we'd go to war game conventions and shows and buy models. and and uh, But wargaming with figures could never, ever compete against Spyro the Dragon or PlayStation uh, or right, stuff like yes. this. So all of those models sort of laid dormant um, in the attic um, for... 10 years right. or so or more actually um until recently with the pandemic and i just needed something to you know take me away from work and you know something that i found completely yes. relaxing and um so i sort of started to have a look at what was in the attic and you know some needed touching up or rebrushing re revarnishing and uh and then um after the academic year last year my my daughter's boyfriend came to uh, to live with us and uh, he's he's a gamer okay. um not necessarily war gaming um but um we've had a conversation and we sort of have a war game on most saturdays um and uh, so we use uh, bolt action uh, rules because uh, i think they're the first ones i sort of picked up and they're really relatively yes. easy to understand um, we mostly do skirmishing uh, games on the dining yeah, room table, yeah. um, but um, you know it's been interesting. We I, I, I never thought I would utter the phrase "I've killed Aragorn." <laughs> um, we, you we, we had a game of <laughs> yeah. um, we 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 had a game of Lord of the Rings, which rules we made up, use, partly using bolt action, you know, sort of distances right. and stuff like that, but. Uh, uh, the heroes came out, so there was Aragorn and Lego Lass and Gimli, and um, they. Uh, I had all the these like, sort of little goblins, and uh, the goblins attacked Aragorn. Oh and my killed goodness! Him. Well, I, I tell you what, if you've been playing the uh, the real uh, strategy battle game, uh, goblins wouldn't be killing Aragorn. But yes, mm. uh, I can imagine that that would have been quite a shock <laughs> for whoever was yeah. in charge of Aragorn to go down to a few goblins. <laughs> but. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, war game is interesting because you know, obviously there's strategy involved and tactics are involved and and the game of chance because it's all you know sometimes it's all on the throw yeah. of the dice. I mean, I bought some new dice. I really fancied these green dice. First time I used them, I think I lost on the roll of dice almost every single time. So I've never used them again. <laughs> um, it's a very familiar story, uh, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> And I think also it's sometimes about being brave. So, you know, if you, if you burst out, if, if you're not in cover, you're very, very likely to, you know, to, 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 to be yes. damaged severely. Yes. And um, the last game I played with, uh, with Joe, um, we set up this scenario where there was a, a Polish, Polish village and uh, to win, the Germans had to capture three of the four um, uh, cottages yeah. And uh, I had one single um, Polish unit, which uh, consisted of 17 figures. And I think he had 
four German units of about 12 figures each, including MG-34s. And um, he was doing well. And the final German unit was to come in onto the table on, on turn four. And because he was doing really well, he decided not to use that unit. So, OK, fine, that's fine. And um, I mean, I was uh, just sort of firing and retreating, firing, trying to hold them up. And uh, that was going OK-ish. And uh, then there was um, uh, a unit I took out of a, one of the cottages into a forested area and then engaged the Germans. And I thought to myself, well, I've really got nothing to lose because, you know, I was completely overwhelmed by by the, you know, yeah. the number of horses, which, which Poles were during the uh, Second World War. So I sort of... Um, charged at this German unit and destroyed oh, wow. it, which meant because he'd only got two units on the table, he couldn't win. <laughs> he couldn't win because he had to capture three yeah. of that out of the four cottages. <laughs> You're a tactical <laughs> genius then, not just a great author, but a tactical genius, Nigel. Just, well, just once. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Once when the dice have obeyed. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I've got um, to congratulate you, though, on bringing up a daughter who's thoughtful enough. To bring a, a potential <laughs> war gamer home. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, you must yeah, congratulate yeah, her I'll, from me. That's and uh, I've I a word do. with my I'll, daughter. I'll She's only it. ten at the moment, but so it's a long way <laughs> off. But uh, I'm already uh, hoping she'll uh, go down that route. But uh, you're right. You're right. I think war gaming, particularly over the last few months, is a great mm. outlet, isn't it, for yeah. Um, creativity and and mindfulness yeah. i think the word that you use now to say um Absolutely. to to switch off from the outside world and to lose yourself whether it's playing whether it's painting whether it's reading or mm. modeling there's so many facets to the hobby isn't there that um yeah. that you can uh, lose yourself in um and a couple of hours will go by in the blink of an eye um Absolutely. If, uh, mm. if you sat at the painting table but uh, so it, it's bolt action and, and the September war is it at the moment is the big thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, I've just bought myself some um, American Army infantry Second World War um, from uh, Empress. Oh yes, they're lovely. They are. Yeah. They are absolutely amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Paul yes. Hicks. I know that Paul's done some work for um, from Empress. I mean, Paul was I think the original sculptor for. Bolt action miniatures. His early war war poles. Well, I mean, the early war poles that they did are his. Right, that warlord then um, bought. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, but I mean, it's interesting. I mean, for pol for Polish infantry, you've got um bolt action miniatures now warlords. You've got crusader miniatures. I think Black Tree Design did a did a few, and then there's a Polish company called Kromlek. Right. Yes, I'm familiar with them. Yes. Um. They 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 do Polish infantry and also some very good MDF buildings oh, okay. as well actually, um, which um, we, 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 I, I, I got a, a bomb um, the other day which uh, which really really easy to put together and uh, complements the the table and I think the table's just as important as the figures it, it needs to look um, got to look the part isn't it. Absolutely, it does. I, I've yeah. got three thumbs yeah. and eight fingers, I think. So I, I usually struggle <laughs> with <laughs> uh, putting things together or gluing things. I, I'm a bit ham-fisted, to be honest. But uh, um, no, never interested in the First World War then. 
from a gaming perspective? I've got some First World War 28mm figures in my mod, in my you know sort of uh, paint yeah. box that have been there at least 15 oh, right. years. Okay. They're undercoated, but that's as well. Okay. I think, um, um, yeah, I mean, the First World War's tricky, I think. Um, I mean, you could definitely do skirmishing. That's, not, that, that's yeah. not a problem. So, you know, early 1914 stuff you could definitely do. Um, I mean, I mean, I've seen some amazing um, tables where they've got complete trench systems for the British and the yeah. Germans, um, and the barbed wire in between. Mm. Um, but no, I, I mean, no. Uh, for me, I mean, I, I'm really interested in in the September 1939 campaign, and uh, um, you know, Roger Morehouse's book on that recently published. I think it was published last right. year. Um, is is excellent and i'd highly recommend yeah. that um but um yeah that, that that's uh my my mainstay is uh september 1930 1939 at the moment and of course the two fat lardies do a whole series of uh scenarios um uh, for that campaign as well which I'll yes have. that's right i've so got i've got those it take me a very long time to work yeah there's quite a lot in there isn't there <laughs> There is indeed. Oh, I I need to uh, I need to use you as my uh, historical advisor then advisor for my uh, World War One uh, gaming and and I know Alex um, who we've took, uh, spoken about before yeah. he uh, uses a set of rules called square bashing for First World War uh, battles uh -huh. which uh, I, th I think you'd find interesting um, because mm. what I would like to do is certainly write a scenario for either. Uh, square bashing by Peter Pig, or the Great War spearhead rule set, which I've just painted all the the figures and and buildings for Mons, um, but oh, right. uh, okay. that those figures will certainly be eligible for use uh, twelve months later yeah. uh, at, at yeah. loose. So uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about that in uh, the uh, in the future mm. because I'm going to move on to the last part of the interview now, Nigel, where I request okay. two things of every guest. Uh, the first one is very easy. Uh, it is that I ask you if you will return to the podcast at some point in the future. Um, and particularly uh, if you your third book is on the North uh, Midland Division um, and we can discuss how I might wargame or hopefully by then already have wargamed uh, Luce and the 8th Lincoln's action. So I'd, I'd very much appreciate it if you would return to the podcast at some point in the future. It would be my absolute pleasure. Very good. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and the second one is that we have something here at God's Own Scale called the God's Own Scale Virtual Library, uh, which are basically recommendations uh, for books uh, for the listeners. Now, um, I think the most anybody has ever recommended was three previously, but I believe you might beat that record for me. Yes. Uh, if you don't oh mind, no absolutely not i'm a bibliophile nigel so the more the better um so um i'd like to recommend four books um two of them written by officers um, that served in the uh, first world war and uh, two by contemporary historians mm -hmm. so my first recommendation is by huntley gordon the unreturning army so Huntley was a an artillery officer during the First World War, so uh, and is an excellent first-hand account, uh, one of the very best in in my opinion. 
Um, and then the other one is um, by D.V. Kelly, and that's David, um, and it's called 39 Months with the Tigers, 1915 to 1918. So he's with um, the Kitchener units on, on the Western Front. Right. And again, this is a, a first-hand account. And partly why it's also very important is because he details the um the for want of a better phrase the learning curve or the, the learning process of the british expeditionary force so he he can identify what what's happening in 1917 1918 is so much better than what happened in 1915 16 because of the technological advances because of the um strategic advances because of the advances in thinking and learning um, the other two books by contemporary historians, one is by George Morton Jack, um, and this is his book on the Indian Army on the Western Front. Um, the Indian Army, as I, I've already alluded to, played a, a really important part um, um, during the First World War. And I think his book is the is the very best book available on the Indian Army um, on the yep. Western Front. And the other book is um, about Mesopotamia, and this is by Charles Townsend, and the very same name as the officer at Kut, but uh, a, a, a really very good um, historian. And it's called um, "When God Made Hell," and it's you know it's a fantastic, fantastically detailed, really easily readable um, book about the um, the Mesota Mesopotamian right. campaign. Um, and uh, obviously much broader than my own narrow perspective on uh, Second Leicester. So I'd highly recommend that to uh, to the audience. That's fantastic. All four of those books, along with your own two books, uh, Nigel will take pride of place on the God's Own Scale virtual library shelves, and uh, I'll put links up to those uh, in, in Brilliant. the show notes. Uh, Nigel, thanks so much for giving up your time. Um, I know that my work ske schedule has interfered a little bit with us getting this out but we're here now and we've we've managed to get through the interview on scathe so uh i, I yeah. really thank you for giving up your time and and sharing the in-depth knowledge that you've you've got on this topic because it, it really shines through your, your knowledge and your passion for the subject thank you very much indeed sean for the opportunity it's always a pleasure to talk about you know my research and uh, my passion uh, whether it be, you know, sort of eight Lincolns, second Leicesters, wargaming, um, anything to do with the First World War. So thank you very much indeed. And I, I, and like I say, I'd love the opportunity to come back again one Fantastic. day. Fantastic. Well, uh, we'll we'll get that sorted and, and get you on very soon. But uh, for now, thanks very much for your time. Super. Yes. Thanks very much. What a fascinating chat with Nigel, and I'm very much looking forward to chatting with him again, especially once his book on the North Midland Division is released. My hobby has been a tad slow over the last week or so, 
I've received my first package through from Grumbler Miniatures and will be they will be next up on the painting sticks. It looks like Alan is making a great start on his French cavalry, so keep an eye out across all the social medias for pictures and details of those as they come online. I've actually been painting some odds and ends uh, in 15mm uh, from Peter Pig. And for those so inclined, I have resurrected my YouTube channel, Billy Goat Wargaming, which has been on hiatus for around 12 months, but I'm going to be throwing the odd occasional review and uh, painting and chat video up on there as motivation strikes. I think that'll be my outlet for the 15mm side of my hobby. Uh, we are a broad church and you have to go where the muse takes you, I suppose, but uh, this podcast and 6mm will remain my major focus for my output. My big projects for the second half of 2021 remain on course to be Blenheim and Waterloo, but as I've said previously, Waterloo will be the slower of the two as I await each new release from Grumbler. That will be a 100% or as close as to 100% project as possible. I'm still contemplating how to base those figures. I'm very tempted to go with a volume bayonet style base, but uh, perhaps a two-thirds scale, as opposed to using uh, the blooper bases. But I'll uh, I'll report back again on that uh, as and when I make that decision. Uh, I really like the volume bayonet rules just purely because of their simplicity. And I think they still give a really good result and a good game, actually. So those two projects will likely take me through, well, will take me through into 2022. My order form for Bacchus for the Blenheim uh, stuff is filled out, but I'm trying to paint what I've got in the lead pile rather than adding more unpainted lead and putting more pressure on the Bacchus team casting orders for figures I may not paint for a few months. And obviously we're still under the £50 limit that Bacchus are uh, have in place at the moment on orders, which is great because I, I doubt I can paint more than £50 worth of miniatures in one month if, if I was painting solely six volumes. So... More again on that, but um, I may well put up the order of battle that I have for Twilight of the Sun King. Just to show you uh, what figures you need for that and uh, what, what type of figures I'll be using. The AWI Guildford Courthouse project is ticking along nicely with some more Continentals and Riflemen now done. The Guildford Courthouse is one of the smaller side projects that... I will always have a few figures, uh, a few units prepared for, and we'll pick up as and when inspiration strikes in between uh, these much larger projects. And I'm really enjoying uh, using that method to get the these figures done. I really can't wait to get Guildford Courthouse on the table using the Rudiger rules from Glenn Pierce. A recent major spring clean in the command bunker has really helped to motivate me to sit in here more and get more work done. I think after 35 years in the hobby, I might just be starting to get get organised. As in, every single pot of paint that I now own is in one box, other than those paints that are on my MDF stands. So I don't have to go searching around for that certain 
shade of green or grey that I need and uh, getting bored looking for it and going and having a cup of tea instead of painting. Um, and similarly with all my hobby materials, my uh wood, sticks, stones and bits of block, etc. They're now all in one big plastic box which I keep under my desk uh, in easy reach. Uh, and it's it's been a cathartic moment, I think is the best way I can describe it. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. And thank you to all of my Patreons, obviously. Uh, they help to keep the lights on and, and keep this show running as smoothly as it does. Uh, a live chat will be coming up in the next two or three weeks for Patreons initially, and then will be released to a wider world uh, a few weeks after that. So look out for that. Um, I'll probably do a, a Q&A again uh, and a, a paint-along, most likely, uh, where we can just sit and have a chat, I think, and uh, discuss the hobby, the world, and what projects we can tempt each other into. Uh, if you should wish to support the show, please visit my Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash God's Own Scale. If you wish to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at God's Own Scale. Or email me at godzonescale at gmail.com. Also, be on the lookout for some God's Own Scale merchandise, including t-shirts, mugs and tea towels. Always a useful Christmas gift to give to someone special in your life. But until next time, please keep safe, play nice, and keep talking about sex.
the German drops then it's dear, oh dear. All the while gave away a paddy yell, hooray, as he ran for the Dutch frontier. Goodbye, goodbye, oh, I'm pretty, then get from your eye. Don't pass, don't pass.